Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a wonderful chat room, so Ravinder, why don't you chat everybody up about joining your chat room? Oh, yes, everyone's invited to the chat room. Uh, I always learn lots from everyone in there. We have a bit of a laugh, and it definitely adds a whole new dimension to the subject matter that's being discussed on the air, it makes it more personal, brings it alive. So if you can join us, so not if you're driving or anything like that, but if you can join us, do come to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to focus on the idea of aging. Years ago, I developed a strategy and technology for younging. I based my work in theories on the work of others who had shown the critical role perception and expectation have on aging. Let me unpack that a little. Living long and remaining healthy is something we all want. Ask the teenager if they would like to live to be 100 and the likely answer is an emphatic no. Unfortunately, that is due to their expectation or attitude toward age and old people. All too often, aging takes a toll that betrays our best and instead reveals the lack of attention we gave to our health when we were younger. This is the image that so many young people see, and this is the image that they therefore put in their heads as the expectation for what will happen to them when they too grow old. Thus the statement, only the brave grow old. Now, ask a 99-year-old if they wish to live to be 100, and the answer is typically yes. So what's the lesson here? There are at least two levels to be considered with regard to expectation or attitude. The first come down to the fact that hard research shows our expectations often are self-fulfilling prophecies. They come true. Consider this by way of example. Years ago, I did some research regarding the role of mind in wellness, and it eventually led to a book, Wellness, Just a State of Mind. One of the studies I came across was most interesting and relevant to the whole matter of my beliefs regarding aging and, for that matter, dying. In this case, the Chinese birth sign was used to compare death with the expectation factor. According to the Chinese system of astrology, each birth sign provides information about the individual in terms of their occupational proclivities, talents, interests, and even the eventual cause of death. According to researcher David Phillips, the data showed clearly a clear, re- a clear relationship 
between the astrological sign and the cause of death. In other words, if you were born believing that you'd die of cancer because that's what your sign said, then cancer is what you died of. Attitude is part and parcel of expectation. Our attitude influences us on a daily basis. When our mood is down, our body bears witness to it. It's no wonder people approach us and ask, what's wrong when we are feeling blue? Our attitudes are telegraphed by our facial expressions, our body posture, tension, and other physical characteristics as we go through life. Let me remind you that the body, analogously, has two budgets, one for growth and one for defense. When we keep the body in a state of vigilance, anxious or angry, sad or blaming, and so forth, we essentially spend our budget on defense. The body pays a very real price for this. One of my favorite stories is about a friend of mine who played disc jockey for a 50-year reunion. He told me that he prepared all the music from around the year of graduation and only when he saw folks arriving with canes and limps hunched over and moving along as though they were too old and tired, did it dawn on him that the music he had selected was all dance music. But what was he to do? Well, there wasn't anything he could do at that point, so he went on and played the music. His smile gave away the ending to this story when he shared it with me. In his words, they limped in and danced out. Our memory and expectation both play large roles in how we age. Dr. Ellen Langer of Harvard University demonstrated this years ago when she took a group of older people to a cabin in the woods where they were separated from everything modern. Indeed, they were surrounded with magazines, music, automobiles, and more, all from the circa vintage of their early 20s. When the week was over and the subjects were ready to depart, they were post-tested for their length of gait, expressions, muscle uh, uh, tension, etc. By every measurable means, they had reversed their aging process and were leaving the cabin younger than when they arrived. Maintaining an optimistic and positive attitude then becomes as important to our health as exercise and diet. Our attitude definitely impacts what we find stressful and how we desensitize stressful stimuli. Our attitude also directly influences our sleeping patterns. From an overall perspective, we must understand that it is the thoughts in our head, our attitude, if you will, that determines much of our health. With the proper attitude, we find exercise fun and rewarding. With a healthy outlook on life, we enjoy good nutrition and pass on the fast foods and fattening sweets. With an optimistic attitude, we have every right to expect a long, healthy life full of smiles and laughter. With a right attitude, we find sleep easy and natural at day's end. With an attitude of respect and love toward ourselves, we find our body remains young, fit, and healthy. Self-sabotage exists because of a belief. Our attitudes are mirrors tiny examples of our beliefs. Our beliefs are intricately connected like spider silk forming a giant web. They do not exist in isolation. Touch any one belief and the entire web is disturbed 
And this can be why it seems so difficult sometimes to make a change. But that said, new research confirms that of all the things a person can do to improve the quality of their life, nothing is as powerful as a personality change. But making this change unaided can be a challenge, to say the least. Back to my own work. We conducted what I call a Junging experiment in a pilot study with volunteers. The results were remarkable, both from the written reports and the before and after pictures. My advice? Cancel those old stereotypical images you might hold about aging, and you might just surprise yourself at how young you become. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, I'm a strong, strong believer in um, attitude and the power of the mind and all of that stuff when it comes to the aging process. I have just seen that time and time again. You know, there is some truth in the, you know, the old saying that youth is wasted on the young because there are lots of things I could maybe have done differently. Um But that isn't to say that age is all a downhill process. I know lots of people, you know, friends and peers of mine um, will often talk about aging and how they have to take it slower. You know, this catches up on all of us. But they all add in except for Ravinda because I'm not going to let any of that stuff hold me back. I'm going to carry on working at staying young. I've got goals. My goal is to be running still when I turn 100. That is just a goal that I have out there. So I don't have time for these ideas of, you know, these old-fashioned ideas of what aging should be. I keep myself positively tuned up, which is why we play quantum younging so often in our bedroom at night we just play it all night long and it just it takes away those those thoughts that we're surrounded by because it's in the media it's you know people are always talking about aging being a downhill process and i won't buy that but i'll make sure that i can cancel out that negative input and so quantum younging to me is absolutely invaluable and I think I'm doing pretty good, and you are doing fabulous. People are always guessing your age to be, oh, at least 20 years younger, and it's that's really cool. You know, I get a thrill when they card you and they don't card. Oh, cheeky booger. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that one, all right. <laughs> okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Erlander Haraldson, and we spoke about his research and book. I saw a light and came here. I'm getting this this glare from Ravinder across the broadcast table here. Forgive me. Um, Emily wrote, I loved your show with the professor. I love stories like this. CB commented, wow, that body mark clue sounds like one of those things investigators keep to themselves as an acid test that is not common knowledge. Richard remarked, considering what I now know about how the brain functions, operating almost entirely from stored concept-like data, it is quite challenging to imagine how such info would be inserted into a live human brain. Elizabeth wrote, I love that your shows host so many profs. It's reassuring that science is much more than I was ever taught in school. Well, amen to that, Elizabeth. Moving on, Allison wrote, I have been a customer for many years, had an Intertalk CD library that loved my now 14-year-old to sleep, 
beginning when she was four or five. Confident chicky, this one. I like that. I give Eldon some of the credit. Sold them when we moved out of the country for a bit, so I'm replenishing our supply digitally. Edward wrote, your technology is one, is the only one that works out there in the self-help industry. There isn't any other reliable alternative. Look forward to ordering more from Intertalk in the future. Well, thank you, Edward. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Okay, before we get to this week's show, just as one more thing. You stay young. I want everybody to think that you're just, you know, 20 years younger than me. Okay? (laughs) Now to this week's show. The Mind, Body, Self with Dr. Mario Martinez. Dr. Mario Martinez is a licensed clinical psychologist and best-selling author of three books. The Mind, Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success, the Mind, Body, Self, and the psychological novel, The Man from Autumn. He lectures worldwide on his pioneering work in biocognitive science, a new mind-body paradigm that investigates the inherited causes of health and how our cultural beliefs affect our immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. Based on how the immune system makes decisions under conditions of uncertainty, Dr. Martinez has also developed a unique model of organizational science that we'll ask him about today. He calls it the Empowerment Code, to teach executives of global companies how to maximize productivity while enhancing wellness. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Mario Martinez. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's indeed mine. We like to know three things on this show. Um, Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin by learning more about you. How did you become interested in psychology, and particularly in biocognition? And, indeed, please also explain what you mean by biocognition. Okay. My interest in psychology came when uh, my mother told me that I had to be an engineer like my, my grandfather. I tried it. And it didn't work. And she said, well, just do anything except psychology. So that was the, uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, beginning. Uh, and I think that uh, <clears throat> what happened is that when I studied uh, psychology uh, as a neuropsychologist, we were learning what happens with the brain when there's trauma, when there's illness, the pathology of the brain. So we know the deficit of the brain. But very little was taught about what happens with the, when the brain is working well and also not at all in, in those days and even now, how does a culture affect that? So I had to come up with a word of biocognition, which uh, in my world, it means mind, body, but also culture. The mind and the body communicate with each other in a cultural context, and uh, otherwise there would be a vacuum and it, it, it never exists. So the best way to explain it is that imagine that the world has intimate or infinite possibilities of uh, being interpreted. Then the culture, which is a collective belief, weaves a fabric around the world, and that culture, what it does is that the brain of that culture, or the individuals, read the fabric rather than just the world uh, as as infinite uh, interpretations. That's one way to put it. And the other part that's very important is that uh, we talk about mind and body and how mind over body, but but very few people explain why and, and what is the science behind it. 
And one of the things that I try to do is I try to take very complex uh, scientific processes and, and just bring them down to earth and explain it. But also, more importantly, as you said at the beginning, how can you apply it? How can you put this to use on a, on a daily basis? <clears throat> and the way to see it is that if you say, well, a thought can affect your biology, uh, most reductionists would say, how can a thought which has no biology, is something out there, how can it affect uh, your biology? And here's how. You go back to day one, and the way we're designed, we're designed to pay attention to what I call the culture editors, which are people that have power and control within context, a mother with a child, a doctor in a clinic, clergy in a church, and so forth. So we're designed to pay attention in order to survive at first and later to have meaning. So even though we don't have a language, we have a biology when we're hungry. The immune system is doing something, the nervous system is doing something, the endocrine, and so forth. And we have a feeling about it. Then we see a breast or we see a, a bottle. We respond to it. It satiates the, the urge. And that biology changes also. You begin to secrete the endorphins and other things that are necessary for you to feel the comfort of uh, having been fed and so forth. Then the language comes later. And the language says, oh, that's a bottle. That's a breast. That's a mother. But you have already created a biosymbol of that situation. So then it happens that you go to school and you pay attention to the teachers, you go to uh, um, clergy and you pay attention to the temple or the church or whatever. Uh, the doctor, especially, the doctors will tell you how long you're going to live and the propensities of the family. And all of those things are culturally imposed processes on biology rather than just biology by itself. Interesting. I enjoyed your book, by the way. I see the, Thank you. I think you've taken some some brave steps in, in an area where you know, this whole area that we used to think of as uh, psychoneuroimmunology. Yes. Um, you know, we're all products of our culture, but few seem to understand the ramifications implicit in our enculturation. I mean, we all know about such things as ethnocentricity, but how about the impact culture itself has on our beliefs regarding health and longevity, you know, uh, please flesh out for us your ideas on the role culture plays specifically on wellness and longevity. Okay, uh, culture, uh, anthropologists uh, struggle with this, uh, but I'm just going to give it a very clear operational definition in, in my theory. Culture is really the collective belief that a group has on very important things in life like ethics, uh, aesthetics, transcendentalism, wellness, illness, uh, aging, longevity, and those collective beliefs will then have an effect on, on your biology. So, for example, in um, uh, in the United States, the cause, the, the interpreted cause of a migraine is vascular. So you get medication for the vascular condition that's causing the uh, the headache. But if you go to France, it's hepatic. They attribute it to the liver, and you get medication for the liver. If you go to UK, gastrointestinal, and you get a suppository. So even even medicine is culturally uh, driven. Uh, and then what happens is that we it's better to look at it as a bioinformational field of, of information between body and mind and culture. And then the culture editor, in this case, the doctor will say, okay, it's it, we're going to give you something for the gastrointestinal component. And it's not just a placebo, it's just that when something breaks, the whole system breaks. And then the gastrointestinal may be breaking, the, the vascular may be breaking, or the hepatic may be breaking. And then whatever you get has a placebo effect, but also has a biological effect, a ph pharmacological effect, and then wellness comes in. 
But I'll give you another example of a belief system. Uh, when you look at uh, a functional MRI where, where you can actually see the brain in vivo, you can see the actual movement of blood flow and so forth. Uh, and they're part of the, uh, between your eyebrows, slightly above your eyebrows is a prefrontal lobe. And that's the abstraction and the sense of self. When you do a functional MRI for someone in the US, for example, who, who lives in, a, in an uh, individualist culture, or someone from the UK, Australia, individualist, you will ask them, uh, talk about yourself, and that middle part of the prefrontal lobe will, will be active. And then they'll say, okay, talk about your mother or a friend or something. It goes to another side of the brain. But then you go to a collectivist culture, like uh, Japan and Korea, China, which is very, uh, very much uh, the collectivism is what, what's valued rather than the individual as right. much. Filial and you ask them to right. talk. Exactly. So you ask them to talk about themselves, and that part of the prefrontal lobe in the middle will activate. To talk about their family, that part stays in the same area. So the brain learns to interpret the cultural interpretations that we make of the world. And that's that's fascinating, but you don't see that in too many journals unless you go to some uh, scientific journal. And what that means is that we have that pliability to change not only the brain, but the culture believes that we were told that uh, that are true. So gerontology, for example, the branch of medicine that studies the aging process, they study the pathology of aging. I study the costs of health in the process of growing older, which is completely different. Yeah, and I want to get to that, but there's two things implicit in what you've just told us. The first one is the brain ends up being hardwired based on cultural uh, propositions. The second one is, and you correct me if I've got this wrong, because I'm going to ask you to flesh it out a little more. The second one is, um, I may, in the United States, see a physician about a headache and receive different medication for a different part of my body for a different reason, as you have pointed out. But the medication works. I go away and, yep, that took care of it. The same is true in the United Kingdom or anywhere else. Um, So culturally, we're also trained to believe that certain things work well. And and in in that sense, it becomes a question, I suppose, of is that a placebo or is that just a pure result of the training, the wiring? Is not the whole process hardwired because we watch different, using fMRI, we watch different responses in the brain to the conditioning, to, to the material that's used as a conditioner. For example, there's a study that I'm very well aware of where smokers were giving cigarettes. One had nicotine, one didn't have nicotine. They were told that they were going to watch their brain smoking a cigarette without nicotine, both parties. The parties that smoked the cigarette with nicotine had no difference in their brain activity than the parties that smoked the cigarette without nicotine. But when they were given a cigarette with nicotine, there was different activity in the brain. So I guess what I'm saying is, aren't you saying that we just kind of get hardwired out of our culture? Well, uh, not hardwired because where the brain has tremendous plasticity, it's a propensity to see things in a way. uh, I would put it that way. The brain has a propensity to see things in in, in that way. So, for example, uh, another study that uh, looked at uh, the placebo and the demand characteristics, so the characteristics of the environment, how they uh, affect. And they had one group and they gave them an injection and they told them it was going to be 
a bronchial dilator. The bronchioles were going to expand, mm -hmm. but it was actually saline, and the bronchioles expanded. But even more important, they gave another group a a constrictor, a bronchial constrictor, which constricts the bronchioles, mm -hmm. and they told them that it was going to be a dilator. And 60% of the people responded to the instructions rather than to the biochemistry. Okay, by hardwire, of course, what I meant was you know, what fires together, wires together, we become conditioned in a sense yes. that it's very, very difficult to change that hardwiring. And But like a circuit board, of course, you you know, the brain, as you say, is very, you know, has great plasticity about it. So we do have the ability to change that, but only if we become aware of it and vigilant about our efforts to do that. We've got a hard break coming up, Dr. Martinez. When we come back, uh, let's pick it up where we are. We're speaking okay. with Dr. Mario Martinez about his work and book, and it's a great book, The Mind-Body Self. It's challenging, a uh, way of looking at um, how you've learned everything that you've learned and who perhaps you are and what your expectations are and where your health is headed, etc. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at biocognitive.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing the question, does the immune system have morals? So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicky wrote, my hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. i 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Mario Martinez about his work and book, The Mind-Body Self. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at biocognitive, that's B-I-O-Cognitive.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, and it's a new hobby of mine. Those areas include intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior, and you'd be surprised at some of the self-disclosure we sometimes get. So we just played some of the Beatles' Nowhere Man. Tell us, Doctor, uh, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, John Lennon was a genius. Uh, I see it as uh, nowhere a man or a woman is a traveler on a path to the drift. And the drift is a synchronicity that happens in life. The things that happen that indirectly have an effect on us, but we don't know it at the time. And then the curiosity that we allow ourselves to experience when we admit that we don't know everything. And when we admit that we don't know what our grounding is, and then we keep looking and looking. And curiosity is one of the causes of health, actually. Interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you to flesh that out in a bit. But first, I want to pick it up kind of where we were. Human cells have been shown in the laboratory to, uh, you know, to thrive, essentially, for over 100 years. One, one report I saw coming from Stanford was 144 years. I'm not sure how they developed that criteria. But nevertheless, they seem to thrive much longer than the human being uh, in aggregate does. So what do you think is a reasonable life expectation, provided we were to free ourselves of, of the false sense of limitations and negative uh, emotions and, and so forth? I think we're, we're designed to live at least 150 years. Uh, but what happens is that uh, the belief systems that we have, of course, and, and the uh, the environments and the foods that we eat and the things that we do um, limit us. But I've worked, uh, my, my work has been mainly with healthy centenarians, uh, centenari- people who are 100 or over, but who are uh, cognitively intact, who uh, are a contributor to their community, and they have a different way of aging. And for example, uh, another one of the... Um, monoliths of uh, reduction of science was that uh, the telomeres. The telomeres are the uh, the little caps that you have at the end of the chromosomes that kind of keep the chromosomes together. Right. And the thinking is that uh, the longer they are, the longer you're going to live because of the, the longer they are, the more your cells will be able to reproduce. Right. And that was it. Okay, so there you go. If it's long, then you're going to live long. If it's short, mm-hmm. you're going to have a shorter life. Studying centenarians, you find the centenarians have long telomeres, short telomeres. So those are indicators, but not determinants of, uh, of the aging process. Another example is that uh, the thinking is that uh, because biology had to borrow from physics, they had to borrow from Newtonian physics to make itself legitimate. And mechanical things and closed systems don't work like open systems, like uh, self-generating and self-organizing systems like human beings and, and, and living beings. We do have some mechanical processes, but that's not all. So then, as they borrow from physics, physics has the uh, one of the laws is that the entropy, that systems go from order to disorder. So if you impose out on aging, well, you're going to have order, and as you get older, you, you get disorder. 
but we're more akin to the complexity theory, which says that systems go from simple to complex. And that can explain more of these anomalies, or they're not anomalies, but science sees them as anomalies, of people who are over 100 years old uh, who, uh, who are actually doing well. I interviewed a 107-year-old um, Zen master in California, and uh, I asked him, uh, when, uh, when did your parents die? Because I'm always looking for the, uh, the genetic component. And right. by the way, genetics is only 20%. So he gave me a, a typical Zen answer. He said, uh, my parents die when I die. <laughs> but then I went over to his uh, assistant and asked her later privately, could you please tell me about his, his parents? And she checked it out and she said, his father died when he was 70 and the mother when she was 75. So, uh, so much for, for the genetic component. There's no question that if you have good genes in the family, that helps. But it's not the determinant. It's only a contributing factor. You, you know, one of the things that I think people have difficulty with is they don't come on to this kind of information um, when they're in their 20s. You know, yes. Uh, yes. They typically encounter it maybe, you know, in their 40s or their 50s uh, or their or, or, or even older. And then they feel that, well, you know, it's too late. Gosh, I wish I'd have known. You heard today's spotlight. What do you think of my proposition that you can young yourself by simply taking the kinds of steps that, you know, we were talking about in that spotlight? Well, good news. I, I just did a workshop uh a few a few weeks ago in, in Nashville, and fifty percent of the people were under thirty, which is good. Oh, that's it's, it's good very, news. Very encouraging. And you mentioned Ellen Langer, my uh, colleague from from Harvard. She's been able to show that you can actually reverse the aging process. I have uh, an experiment that I do with Christian Northrup and, and other colleagues, where actually you can change the way you look, your facial uh, looks uh, of of tiredness and stress and so forth, within seven days using the technique. So you can, and one of the reason is the reasons is that we don't store memory just as thoughts, but we store the cluster of the total system, what the system was doing, all throughout the body, through like the bioinformational cluster, what the immune system was doing at the time, what the nervous system was doing at the time, and so on. When we bring it back, what we're doing is we're creating a new biology. Now, it doesn't change magically. It's a process of uh, developing and changing consciousness and changing the way you function. But I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, the, the brain doesn't change just by, by saying, I'm a good person. It requires, mm -hmm. the neuromaps require evidence. So if you do attributions and if you do affirmations that, okay, I'm, I'm a good person, it's not going to buy it. You have to look at your history of your goodness. So an example, let's say that you, you don't believe you're a good person. And by the way, as you know, self-esteem has a lot to do with, with health. Yeah. So let's say that you have an, an affirmation that says, I'm a good person. All right. The first thing to do is just to pay attention to your body to see how your body is actually assimilating that. And you may find a little tension or you may find a thought that says, no, you're not. That's what the immune system is going to respond to, to the no, you're not. Mm -hmm. But then what you do, since you have history, go back and you ask yourself, when, when was I a good person? When did I do something that I felt good about? You bring it back. You embody it. The biology will show and as you do this over and over and over, it begins to change the neuromaps that had the uh, propensity to see that you are a bad person. But it doesn't stop there. Then for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, 
you continue to function as a good person to give your mind-body evidence that you're a good person. Then when you do the attributions, it works because it's in harmony with your with your evidence. Right. So you're basically revivifying uh, the times that you were a good person or the times that you succeeded, depending on what your, your subject is. You can also, let me, this is really a question, although I'm starting out as though it's not. You can also revivify or do revivify illnesses. Years ago, I did a paper for Israel called Memory Dependent Wellness. And uh, essentially, the research tended to suggest that there are certain signals that trigger so maybe somebody gets a cold a certain time of year every year. And if they go back and they think about when they first got that that bad sore throat and that bad cold, it was a day that they were being asked to sing or take the stage and make some presentation. And, of course, it was their way out of it or it gave them an escape. You know, they they didn't have to go to school and take a test or something of that nature. Have you found that to be true as well? Yes, and, and here's the reason, I think, uh, because the immune system ha- has a bimodal uh, way of functioning. It's either empowered or disempowered. When it's right. empowered, the, the cells that kill precancer cells work well, the population increases, their efficient increases, and so forth. So if you bring back a memory of disempowerment, and also uh, what Ellen Langer calls the premature cognitive commitment, that you, you have a context that, that in that context, let's say you were sick in that context, and you go to that context, and if you're not aware, what will happen is you'll go back to the memory of, of what happened. You bring back the memory of what was going on. You create a stress reaction, including uh, cortisol and epinephrine and so forth, as well as a helpless immune system, an underfunctioning immune system from the memory that you're bringing in. And then whatever's going on, you'll you'll catch it or you bring it back. Uh, so absolutely, there's evidence. There's much more evidence from what uh, of what you're saying that actually confirms that. But it's very subtle, so it's very difficult to show, and also you can't bottle it. But it, so it's not <laughs> going to have that kind of uh, uh, support from the pharmaceuticals and other people that make money with external information and external things. I'm not so sure they don't try to bottle it, though. They'll roll out the same commercials the same time of year. <laughs> yeah. no, right, they do bottle get... the negative, but not the positive. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, let's go back to the centurions for a minute. I remember seeing a study that looked for a common denominator across centurions, and the only thing they were able to turn up was a sense of connectedness um, to something greater, something higher, something more meaningful, if you will, something spiritual, and a connectedness to the community. They were active uh, in their communities, involved with other groups, and so on and so forth. Did you find any commonalities in your research? Would it support what this earlier study that I'm uh, uh, suggesting uh, stated? Yes, and, and that is one of the one of the chapters actually in the book is about the causes of health, what triggers the causes of health, and that's one of them. And there are many others. Uh, I think that uh, that that is a, a, a very important one. Another one that's very simple is breaking bread with friends or family without the uh, distractions from from the eye self and, and all these other things that happen, because we're told in our DNA from the time of the caves or the times in the forest where eating was a conservation component. I mean, you had to talk about where the food was, where the where the danger was. So it had a very powerful conservation component. And now 
because of our consciousness has a meaning component. But what are we doing? We're watching television, we're texting, and we're doing all the things and robbing ourselves of one of the most powerful causes of health. And there are about 10 or 12 that I mentioned in the book, but yes, definitely, that's that's one that's extremely important. And I, I have not met a centenarian who was isolative, antisocial. They all had a sense of giving, but another cause of health is setting healthy emotional limits. For example, I uh, was interviewing a 102-year-old man, and, and they're always very giving, but with, with limits. Um, I asked him, uh, could I could I see you uh, Saturday so we can get together and want to learn some things from you? Oh, yeah, sure, Saturday. And I said, 9 o'clock in the morning? He said, nope, at 9 o'clock I have tango lessons. And he said, no. He said, I can do it at 2 or I can do it at 3. That's extremely important. A caretaker or a person who doesn't really value themselves would give up their joy and say, no, of course, I'll give up the tango and I'll, and I'll, and I'll go ahead and talk to you. That's not being selfish. That's being self-caring, which is extremely important for the causes of health. I think that's in part why you have that adage, retire, you die. And the research that tends to support it is so many yes. people leave the community of their work, you know, yes. their, their fellow workers, etc., find themselves in a supine position with a television on in the dark room, and that's how they live out their days. And, you know, it, there are major consequences to that. Listen, oh, Absolutely. Uh, I have railed on this show and on other shows as a guest against the so-called law of attraction. There are many things about that <laughs> I find just absurd, including the notion that, you know, if you're a victim, well, you must have attracted. Well, anyhow, that's not where I'm going. <laughs> Your book, you you state you can't find any science behind the law of attraction. What, what, is, what is your opinion about the law of attraction? Here's the, the thing about it. If you believe in the law of attraction, you're going to have some sense of connectiveness and some sense of uh, there's meaning in the world. And that in itself is helpful, but not because there's any law of attraction for the wrong reason. And if you wanted to check it out, you get uh, 100 people in a room and have them try to attract someone for 100 days, and it's not going to happen. What happens, though, is that if you believe something, you open your perception selectively to see the options of the things that are possible for you believing. But it's not attraction, not attracting anything. You have to seek it out, and you have to be open to it. So, for example, you want to buy a blue Ford, and you see them everywhere you go. You don't want to buy, buy a blue Ford, and, and it goes by your, your blind spot. So right. I don't think there's anything like that, but but indirectly, I mentioned in the book, indirectly, if you believe in it, it'll help you for the wrong reason. But here's the problem, that you'll be disillusioned when it doesn't happen and you'll blame yourself. I agree. I agree totally. And I, I think it's crazy pretense. But OK, tell us about what you refer to as the embodiment of the four immeasurables. Uh, the what I try to do is bring in some of the uh, Tibetan Buddhist psychology, which is really excellent. It's uh, at least uh, 2000 years there. Of course, uh, uh, Buddha is a little older, but that's when when it was developed more or less 1800 years. And our psychology is maybe 160, 170 years. Uh, and what they do is they have something very good, but we can teach them also something from the from the uh, Western science. The foreign measurables are are ways of, of meditating. Uh, Empathic joy, uh, which is, for example, it's excellent for envy, 
because you are celebrating the triumphs and the uh, good fortune of others, loving kindness, compassion, uh, and, and so forth. Now, here's what happens. Another one of the causes of health is righteous anger, which is the ability to express your, your anger when your innocence or the innocence of others has, has been violated. So here's an example. The Tibetan lamas will do the empathic joy uh, for the Chinese, which is I send love to my enemy, and I think that's good, but they don't have a word for uh, emotions. They consider mind and body to be one. That's good in a way, and it's bad in another. Because what they're doing, and that immeasurable, they're saying, okay, I'm empathic joy, I'm sending a celebration to the people that rape the nuns and 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 burn our temples and, and cause the exile and so forth. The immune system's not going to buy that. So the only way that the neuroimmunoendocrinology of that will work is that if you're sending that signal, you say, okay, I don't want to feel anger because it doesn't exist. The only way that you can stop that is that your pharmacy will say, okay, the only way I can really stop you from feeling anger is by sending you a lot of endorphins, which is a, uh, a natural anesthetic. Right. Fine. But what happens when you have a high level of endorphins at a chronic level? It begins to affect the metabolism of glucose, and Tibetan lamas have a high incidence of uh, diabetes type 2. So it has to be in body. You first have to, what, what is it that, okay, uh, uh, what have these people done to me, and how do, I, how do I manifest it in my body? How can I observe it? And then after I observe it, then how can I begin to express the higher emotions, but not until you're able to express the more primitive emotions which are a way of releasing and a way of confirming that you were uh, you were victimized. Now, there's a limit on how you coach people toward that, isn't there? I mean, I can remember when anger therapy, yes. you know, used to. Okay, so so um, flesh out the limit. I don't, you know, people okay, need to a, understand. Yeah, go ahead. Great point. Righteous anger is under a particular context. If you take it out of that context, it becomes chronic anger and it's bad for you. It causes all kinds of uh, psychoneurological problems. So in the context would be someone is being aggressive with my child. I can be angry and I can take care of it and I can protect my child. But I don't take that anger out of that context and wherever I go that I'm angry. Uh, and then that's the type A personality is angry all the time. By the way, the type A personality, there were a lot of variables that they looked at. The only one that can make you sick from the type A is the anger component. Uh, you can be compulsive, you can be all these other things, but anger is the main component that adds to the heart problems with the type A personality. Right. So that's a good point. I'm glad you asked for that because it, it's not anger uh, on a chronic basis. Anger specifically in a context where your goodwill or you're being abused in, in a particular way, then, then it's okay to be angry, but then you let it go. Then you release it and you move on to other emotions. Then it's healthy. But not, as you said, uh, I'm glad you brought it up, not as a chronic thing because it actually becomes your enemy. And how, what would you tell our audience is the best way to navigate adversity? And, and, and I mean, using uncertainty as their guide. Well, uh, we have uh, part of the brain is linear. Part of the left side of the brain, although it's not that specific, but it's the propensity is for the one part to be linear and the other one to be nonlinear. And we impose linearity in the world. 
and the world is not linear. The, the, the world is more com complexity and chaotic in the sense of, and chaotic, not random, chaotic and the loss of complexity. So let's say that you're going from point A to point B. Uh, you're going to work and, uh, and point B is your job. And that's the plan that you have. That's a linear plan, which is good. It's necessary. You have to have it. But then there's a there's an accident that you have to detour. Immediately, the variables change, and point A to point B is no longer linear. So you could either get angry and try to find a way to get to point B the way that you learned, or you can stop and shift gears. And this is where uncertainty comes in. Uncertainty is based on discovery. So you go to discovery and say, okay, first I'm going to take a deep breath and not take the hit on the stress that this could be causing me. Let me look around and see what I could do. And let me see what I could discover in the process of going around or whatever it is that you're gonna do. And you might discover a new restaurant, you might discover something that you've never seen before. And eventually you get to the place, but you get to a place with a different process, with a different attitude. One of the ways to create that uncertainty, which I do on a regular basis, is what I call feed forward. I have to borrow it from engineering. We know what feedback is, which is using right. information from the past or the present. Feed forward is taking information in the present that is latent in the present, but it has an outflow in the future. And in quantum physics, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about subnuclear, not, not quantum physics is very abused. In quantum physics, uh, there, there's a, the time is not a, a present, past, future. It, it, it has a, uh, an, an implicate order. So taking that, not at the quantum level, but at you know the uh, the, the uh, human level, um, you can say, all right, today I'm going to go out to dinner, and I'm going to celebrate something that I don't know what it is. It'll unfold in the future, and I'll find out what I'm celebrating. So you do the celebration, and then Doctor Martinez, I hate to cut you off, but we're going to get booted out of here and. Uh... We're just out of time. I want to thank okay. you for your work and for your My willingness pleasure. to share it with us. And we're going to have to bring you back. Everybody out there, the book is The Mind-Body Self by Dr. Mario Martinez. It has a high recommendation from myself and my lovely bride. Well, we've come to the end of the episode, another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and I hope you'll join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then. Remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.